My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Emma Cunningham. How we relate to land is a question that underlies pretty much everything else in North America. Land is, after all, at the heart of colonization and of indigenous resistance. And even within settler colonial systems, decisions about regulating land are highly contentious. What gets built? Who builds it? What happens there? Who benefits from it? Most of the time, big money is tied up in these questions. There is intense competition around different visions of how to wring the most money out of a piece of land and who should be allowed to do the wringing. But, thankfully, there are also often people who argue that maybe there should be factors at play other than profit in how we collectively make decisions about land. One of the most obvious contexts where this plays out is with respect to questions of zoning and property development. In Ontario, the regulation of property development is, to a significant extent, administered by municipal governments, but under a system designed and controlled by the province. For decades, critics have pointed out that the system works in favor of developers and development, even when that is at the expense of communities and ecosystems. Activism and organizing are sometimes able to stop a particular development or win moderate improvements in the rules, but so far have not managed to fundamentally undo that bias. Under Conservative Premier Doug Ford, the Ontario government has been working hard to make sure that as little as possible stands in the way of developers making money. They reversed the modest changes to the land use planning appeals process made by the previous government. They closed the provincial agency that gave legal assistance to residents in such processes. They revived the controversial Highway 413 project, which recent investigative reporting by the Toronto Star and National Observer has found will benefit a small group of powerful developers, some of whom have tight ties to the Conservatives. And they've been making extensive use of what are called Minister's Zoning Orders, or MZOs, which allow the province to override and disregard local planning processes, existing zoning rules, and other provincial legislation. Right now, there are struggles happening in communities across Ontario around developments fast-tracked through the use of MZOs. Today's episode is about one such struggle, one that recently resulted in victory for those opposed to the development. Duffins Creek is a wetland in Pickering, Ontario, a city of close to 100,000 people just east of Toronto. The wetland has been designated as provincially significant, which generally means that it's supposed to be protected from development. According to today's guest, Pickering City Council, like many municipal councils, broadly favors development and developers. They unanimously voted to request that the province issue an MZO to exempt a proposed warehouse development in the wetland from regular planning, community consultation, and approvals processes, which the province did. Members of the community mobilized in response under the banner of Environmental Action Now Ajax Pickering, or ENAP. Along with a range of online efforts to pressure decision-makers, the group did what it could to navigate COVID-related restrictions and hold demonstrations and other forms of public action. This included temporarily blocking construction equipment from entering the site on two separate occasions. 
And after it was discovered that the warehouse in question was intended by the developer for use as an Amazon distribution center, they also began putting pressure on Amazon. Now, today's episode is a little bit unusual in that it contains material from two separate interviews with Cunningham. The bulk of the show is an interview we did in early March, just after ENAP organized what for Pickering is quite a large demonstration of several hundred people opposed to the development. At that point, it looked almost certain that the development would go ahead. All that remained was for the developer to obtain permits from the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority, or TRCA. Permits that the TRCA had been ordered by the province to issue so they could attach conditions, but they couldn't say no, even though they've repeatedly stated their opposition to development in protected wetlands. So in the first three quarters of what you're about to hear, we didn't know what the outcome would be, and we talk about the community, the development, the struggle to that point, and so on. We spoke again at the beginning of April. After our initial interview, things had moved fast. Crucially, in the face of community resistance, Amazon declared that it had no interest in using a warehouse on that site. ENAP then stepped up its pressure on Pickering City Council and pushed them to ask the province to rescind the part of the MZO related to Duffins Creek. And thanks to their efforts, the wetland is once again protected from development. I speak with Cunningham about her group's victory in the struggle to preserve the Duffins Creek wetland. My name is Emma Cunningham. I'm an activist out of Pickering, and I'm here representing Environmental Action Now, Ajax Pickering, known as ENAP for short. I'm a fair bit of an activist in general, typically around a lot of social causes. I am very involved politically. I volunteer for a political party, but typically I would join a lot of protests and petitions and activism around a variety of social justice issues. But the environment is something that's really important. And so that's something, you know, when I saw what they were planning to do, protesting the wetlands was something that I felt I needed to get involved with. Pickering is a city just east of Toronto. We're certainly smaller than Toronto, but I wouldn't say we're a tiny city. We've got a city council that is determined to turn us into the new Toronto. And so they are on a growth spurt. And so there are going to be condos popping up all over the place, which, as you can imagine, leads to a lot of infrastructure challenges on already busy roads in terms of schools. And so that's where we're at today, is that now, with all these new people coming in, we need to find jobs in the area. There's a few companies coming in that are going to provide those jobs, the biggest two being Durham Live and Amazon, both of whom have an interest in developing a piece of wetland, kind of in the middle of Pickering. And we're all for jobs. We are 100% for jobs. They can bring in these jobs. We are thrilled. A warehouse, if that's what it takes, great. There's no need to build a warehouse on a wetland. There are tons of other places in Pickering that it could go, and we'd ask that it be moved to one of them. How did ENAP get started? Well, City Council decided that they wanted to build. Our city council is very highly funded by developers. The family in particular that is behind these developments donates to most of the city councillors to the maximum amount allowed. And so when they wanted to develop on this property, our Build Hungry City Council got very excited about it and decided to circumvent the normal planning process by requesting a minister zoning orders or an MZO from the provincial government. Now, the Conservatives have been using MZOs far more than the previous Liberal government did. They've been handing them out left, right, and center, to be frank. And so they gave one to the city council to build on this wetland. But we weren't happy with that because it's important to protect our wetlands, both from an environmental perspective, but also something as basic as flood control. So we got together, just a group of people. There's no particular leader of our group. And we started with blockades. So we stopped the construction workers from being able to get on site. 
And we were able to hold up work for about an hour twice before the cops were called in. Nobody got arrested, so everyone left peacefully. And then the construction crew brought their equipment on site so we could no longer blockade them. So then we moved to citizen strikes. So we had roving groups of protests. The challenge is that that was when COVID was in a severe lockdown. So we could only have five people outside at a time, at which point the government was able to say to these developers, oh, look, it's just a small group of people. And they kind of capitalized on the fact that COVID made a state small, but it wasn't the same group of five people going out every time. And it is a much larger movement. So this past Saturday, we held a march. Uh, and remember, the bulk of the interview, until the point where I say otherwise, took place in early March. And some of what she identifies as the current state of things has changed a lot. And we'll talk about that in the last part of the interview. We went past our city hall. We went past our MPP Peter Bethlen Falvey's office. And we had 300 people show up from the GTA, all in support of preserving these wetlands. The other thing that's a problem is that there's an infrastructure and broadband bill coming out of the provincial government. And they snuck in a piece of detail saying that with MZOs, not only will they no longer have to follow their own planning act, but that they never did, meaning that they're retroactively stopping people from bringing environmental concerns over MZOs to court. Environmental defense has a case before the courts, and frankly, they were likely to win because this MZO does contradict the Planning Act. And one of the reasons they'd introduce this legislation is to prevent any legal challenges that were currently in place before the courts on the Duffins Creek wetlands. The government has recently lost a case in Stratford. It's losing a case in Toronto. It's running into difficulties on their highway, and they are frantic for a win. Let's get into some of this in a bit more detail. Maybe start with the wetland itself. What's it like physically? Why is it so important to protect it in terms of its natural value and its value to the community? That sort of thing. So it's actually a fairly large wetland. It's called Duffins Creek. There is a creek. The creek is something a lot of people use recreationally, but it's also something where there's a lot of wildlife. It's only one particular part of the wetland that they're trying to cut down, one at the corner of Bailey's and Squires Beach, if you know Pickering. That's a swamp area, so not something that you'd be going to recreationally. But it is something, like I said earlier, that's very important for flood prevention. And it's somewhere that birds migrate to during the spring months. They come there every year. So that's one of the reasons why they're trying to go so quickly is to speed this up before birds migrate. Wetlands are important for, honestly, a lot of things. And this one is considered to be provincially significant, which is why typically they would not be allowed to develop on it until there was an MZO. Have there been other instances in the recent past of similar kinds of conflicts over development and pickering? Oh, there's tons. There's tons all the time. The big one really has to do with North Pickering. There's a lot of farmland out there that's on lease from the federal government, and the city of Pickering wants to put an airport there. As I mentioned, they're very build-hungry, and they very much want to turn Pickering into a much larger city than it currently is. So there's been a lot of protests about keeping it as farmland and feeding people and not bringing in all the greenhouse gases and carbon emissions and everything that would come with an airport. So there are quite a few environmental issues going on here. And beyond that, there's all the other questions that it comes for growth. You know, where can condos go? You know, there's a lot of nimbyism there, obviously, not in my backyard, where people don't want it to be in their neighborhood because they like their neighborhood. But there's also concerns around infrastructure and places where they're putting condos where there simply isn't something as basic as parking space or something like schools. 
where there just isn't enough room. So there's a lot of questions going around in Pickering right now about where the city council is taking it in their determination to build it up, no matter how hard it is or how much it makes sense to do so. As ENAP was forming, how did you first gather people together? So it started, you know, somebody knows somebody else who knows somebody else, and it sort of snowballed from there. My husband got involved first and kind of brought me on board into the planning committee. And since then, it's been a collective. Like I said earlier, no one is the leader. We all take on our own responsibilities and are in charge of our own areas. So for me, that means I talk to press and we all work together. There's six million email chains going at any given time where we all keep each other in the loop about what's happening. And there's frequent Zoom meetings where we plan together and we all just work as a team. And what can you say in general terms about who's involved in the group? Oh, it's a really wide mix of people. But it's ultimately all people who care about the environment. And we hope that ENAP will continue into the future to follow other environmental concerns. After we save the wetlands, there's always something else to save. What approaches has the group taken to connecting with the broader community? We have social media channels. We have a Facebook group. We've got a website. And a lot of it's been word of mouth. We didn't place any paid ads about our march on Saturday. And we had 300 people show up. So it's very much spread organically. And I think that goes to show how many people are passionate about this issue. 300 people came out during COVID. And we held a very COVID-safe march with you know only groups of 25 going out at a time and all separated. But 300 people were willing to come out during COVID to protest this issue. And they found out about it organically without any paid ads driving them to us. How did the group first let the city and the province know that there was opposition brewing to the proposed development? We started with some news coverage. We contacted journalists. We built some great relationships there. We introduced ourselves to environmental defense, and we've been working with them. And we've certainly been attending things like Pickering City Council, writing letters, making phone calls, just being as loud as we can. What are the dynamics like on City Council? Do you have any allies, anyone willing to speak up on your side of the issue? In order for an MZO to be granted, City Council has to unanimously apply for it. So in that sense, no. But recently, Maurice Brenner, who is one of the friendlier councillors, said that had he known that the MZO would bypass the Toronto Region Conservation Authority's entire process and jam it through without adequate consultation, he might have voted differently. And that's one of the problems we're seeing here is that all the steps, all the checks and balances are being thrown out left, right and center without thought, without careful discussion, without nuance. Talk more about what the process should normally have been and what's been taken away because of the province issuing this MZO. Typically, to do a build, you have to go through a variety of consultations. City experts have to weigh in. You have to talk to planning boards. You have to do public consultations where you talk to people who live and work in the area. There's quite a big process involved in that. An MZO bypasses all of that and just says, yes, you can build there kind of no matter what. But after that, there's TRCA, the Toronto Region Conservation Authority, should be able to decide whether or not to grant what's called a site alteration permit and whether or not they even give permission for this to go through. In this case, TRCA has been handcuffed and they've been told they absolutely are required to grant this permit. So the only thing that they can do at this point is put conditions on it. So why did you decide at a certain point to go beyond, you know, petitions and letters to politicians and that sort of thing and to begin taking action on the streets, the blockades, the citizen strikes, the march and so on? Well, I mean, there's probably about 20 of us actively involved in ENAP. 
and you're not going to see any policies change over 20 people. So if we want to really get this stopped, then there has to be so much outrage that the government can't help but stop it. Politicians have to be convinced that they're going to lose votes over it. The outrage has to be so large that they can see a real political problem for themselves should they go forward with this. And in order for that to happen, you have to escalate. You have to keep getting louder. You have to pull more and more people into your group, into the action. And that's why we're escalating over time is we're just picking up steam. We're snowballing and more and more people are coming along with us. What was involved in blockading the worksite? Did it require a lot of planning? Honestly, just getting in the way. And, you know, everyone has to stand six feet apart and be masked, but block off the entranceway and not let the crew go through. You know, they're not about to plow down people. So we were able to hold up work for an hour until the police got there. And shortly after, you know, they hired security. But yeah, you just get in their way. What were the conversations around risk like among the folks who were considering doing this? There are a variety of perspectives on that. Most people were willing to step aside when the police came. There are some people who would have taken it further. But I think the longer this goes on and the angrier the people get, the more you're going to see, you know, people really being not happy and willing to step up and escalate the actions taken. What exactly did the citizen strikes involve? Groups of five people went out with signs and marched around both the area around the wetlands, but also places like outside the MPP Bethel and Falby's office, City Hall. But again, they had to be groups of five people, so it was easy to brush them off as saying it's just a small number of people who are upset. And I think that's one of the big reasons we had to escalate into this 300-person march is so that governments can see, no, it's not a small group of people. It's quite large. And tell me more about the march. We had two speakers. We had Green Party leader Mike Schreiner and Oshawa NDP MPP Jennifer French. They gave speeches at the beginning and talked about the things that they were doing in the legislature to try and prevent this as best they can. Then we sent people out in groups of 25, massed in distance. So 25 people do take up quite a bit of space when they can't be close together. And then we separated them just to make sure that, you know, nobody was too close. Nobody was going at the same time. We weren't getting in the way of COVID laws of more than 25 people at a time. So we did it very safely, but very effectively. And there was a lot of horns honking as we went by. We got a lot of support from people around us. And overall, it was a really successful march. When you get into conversations with other residents of Pickering, what are the range of things you hear from them about the development and about the actions you've been taking? Pickering is not the most politically active city to begin with. I'd have to check my numbers, but I think our voter turnout in the last municipal election was something like 30%. It's quite low. So most people that you talk to, half of them don't even know there is provincially significant wetlands in Pickering, much less know that they're under threat for development. They don't really know what that means. But as you start to explain it to them, most people do get upset. Like I said, even people who are very pro-jobs and very pro-warehouses there are places this warehouse can go. It's not like we're saying it can't come here. It's not like we're saying there's no home for it. We're saying this is the wrong spot. I think people got a lot angrier after they found out that the Conservatives were trying to pass legislation that would stop the lawsuits in court. I think people get really angry when they find out that the TRCA does not have the power to deny a permit and that it is going ahead no matter what the consequences of that might be. I think the anger is really the fact that they're not looking into what this means. And frankly, they don't care what this means. They want what they want. And they're not going to let common sense or science get in their way. 
And given, like you say, that there are plenty of other places that a warehouse could go in Pickering, what's your sense of why there's a fixation on this particular site? I think that it's a site that's already connected with Durham Live, who is one of the companies involved in this. I think it's a convenient location. I think, you know, it's where they want to be. So beyond the logistics of any particular actions that you've taken, how more generally do you think that the pandemic has impacted the process of building a movement against this development? I don't have any necessarily facts behind us, but I would imagine we could have doubled the amount of people at the march. I know that the Mississaugas of Scugog Island have been very supportive of us, but they have explained that they can't come out to all our actions because of COVID. So I think we would have seen a larger First Nations presence had we been able to do that, not during a pandemic. Citizen strikes would have had a lot more people, would have been able to be a lot louder right off the bat. I think every, everything in life is easier when there's no pandemic. From what I understand, this particular use of an MZO by the province is part of a larger pattern affecting a lot of communities. Can you put the struggle that you're experiencing in Pickering, particularly with respect to the MZO, in a broader provincial context? municipalities have realized that they will hand out MZOs all over the place. And so any municipality that wants to work quickly on something no longer has to go through the planning process because why would they bother? If everyone on your team is more or less agreed, why would you go through all the steps when you can just say, hey, let's get an MZO? And there's no pushback from the government saying, you know, hey, can you, can you actually try before you bring out the nuclear solution? And I think there are sometimes places where MZOs make sense. An example being when the mall in Elliott Lake collapsed, bringing in an MZO to try and bring that back up made a lot of sense because that was something they did need to move quickly on. But there's no urgent rush to bring in a warehouse where you can't go through the normal planning process. There's no reason you shouldn't be consulting with your planning team. There's no reason you shouldn't be consulting with scientists. There's no reason the TRCA should be handicapped. So many steps are being neglected here, and it's really problematic, and it's not democratic, and it's frankly a huge governmental overreach. And that is the last that I'm going to share from our conversation in early March. Because that conversation took place just before the final decisions related to the Duffins Creek wetland, we decided to wait and see what would happen. At that point, it looked like the development was almost certainly going to go ahead. But over the subsequent two weeks, things changed rapidly. Against even their own expectations, ENAP won. The wetland will not be developed. So we talked again briefly almost a month later. I began by asking Cunningham to give a quick summary of the end game of their successful campaign. So we had a bunch of different actions we took. The first big one was we had a march on March 6th where we had 300 people turn up from across the GTA. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, as well as Oshawa MPP Jennifer French, were also very helpful in the legislature. Once it was confirmed that the warehouse was for Amazon, we called Amazon and we emailed Amazon and we hammered them. And when they realized how much resistance was on the ground, we kind of shamed them because they had promised to invest quite a bit in the environment. And so they ultimately had to leave their brand positioning and say that they would not damage the wetlands. Once Amazon pulled out, it was a fairly clear path to victory. We had some Facebook ads in play where we encouraged people to call Pickering City Council and we managed to flood them to the point where it was clear what residents wanted and they could realize that their political future was on the line based on the sheer numbers of people calling in and emailing them. And those calls to City Council kind of sold it through and we were able to do it. 
Once you realized that the struggle to protect Duffins Creek wetland was going to be a win for ENAP, how did you feel and how did the group and the community react? Oh, we were elated. We were so happy. The one thing is that Bill 257 is still in play. As we speak, it's in third reading in the legislature. By the time this airs, I would imagine it will pass, which means that there will be no legal challenges allowed on environmental grounds to MZOs moving forward, which is very concerning and something that I hope a future government will revoke. Looking back on the campaign, what lessons can you take from it that might be useful to groups in other parts of the province doing similar work? Things like what worked in this campaign, what didn't work. What do you wish you knew at the start that you'd learned by the end? I wish we'd known we had a chance. Honestly, we thought it was a losing battle. We were stunned that we were able to win. And one of the reasons we were able to do it was how many people got on board with us and how many people were willing to raise their voices. That's all it takes is get loud and get numbers. And more people than you think really care. And what's your sense of what approaches and tactics that ENAP used were effective in drawing people in, and what was maybe not as effective as you'd hoped? The most effective is always to have people call and email their counselors, their MPPs, and hammering them, because ultimately those are the decision makers. And if you make it clear their political future is on the line because of how many people are truly upset with decisions they're making, that's when they're most motivated to back out. But I think things like marches are very important in terms of inspiring people to take those actions. And so I think all the tactics that we used ended up being really effective. I think, you know, shaming the corporation, shaming Amazon was very effective as well, sort of hanging their own brand positioning in their face. And so I think all the steps we took were very effective. I don't think we did anything that didn't contribute to our eventual success. With the likely passage of Bill 257 coming soon, what do you think that means for the many other communities across the province that are facing similar struggles right now? I think it means that community groups have to be even louder, because if environmental groups are not able to file legal challenges and the government is no longer obligated to follow their own laws, which is stunning to me that they're passing legislation allowing them to break the law, it means we have to have a lot more impact and we have to make these MZOs political and we have to put politicians' jobs on the line. And that's really the only way that we're going to be able to win by stopping them as a community rather than stopping them in the courts. And now that the dust has settled a little bit on your struggle in Pickering around the Duffins Creek wetland, what's your sense of what ENAP is going to be getting up to now? Oh, that is a big question. We are figuring that out ourselves right now. We hadn't initially thought much beyond the wetlands. So we have a meeting mid-April where we're going to sit down and start talking about the future and if we're going to continue and if so, what that future will look like. As of right now, we're a collective organization. If we move forward into something more formal, we will have to, of course, formalize that and start coming up with a process and how decisions are made and who does what. Ultimately, it's too early for me to have an answer for you on that. You have been listening to my interview with Emma Cunningham of Environmental Action Now, Ajax Pickering. To learn more about the group, go to eanap.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.